Welcome to the Addiction Connection. We like to believe the opposite of addiction is actually connection, and we are going to attempt to educate you and possibly even entertain you while we navigate all topics addiction. Hi, I'm Dr. Kirk Devine. And I'm Dr. Heather Bell, and we both provide primary care and addiction services. It's our goal to help you learn more about the disease of addiction and its treatments. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome back. This is the 20th addiction podcast. Here we go. Um, This is kind of a fun topic that was brought to us based on a friend of one of our nurses and just kind of an unknown topic to a lot of people. Of course, we've heard about it, but really getting to dive into it. But this is the whole dextromethorphan abuse, aka DXM abuse, aka robo-tripping, and we'll get to some of those other fun names. But this is the -the over-the-counter cough and cold medicine and how it really shouldn't be over-the-counter in our opinions. Yeah, and it's actually been around for a while. So I think that that's really something to understand that really in 1958, the FDA actually approved this particular drug, dextromethorphan. And it actually came out as something called Romilar. Or Ramilar? Romilar? Romilar. Yeah. And it came out as a pill. And it really the sole active ingredient was dexamethorphan. DXM. Yeah, DXM. Let's say DXM, so I don't have to keep trying to say that. I don't know. And it was actually removed from the market in uh, 1973. So I was just getting ready for high school there, and they pulled it off. Mm, I um, was 10 years prior to birth almost. Yeah, so. You know, I think that's a scary thing, is that they actually pulled the drug from a market because of abuse, yet it's back, yeah. you know, and they haven't even questioned it. Yeah, and they brought it back, and now you can buy it about a million different ways. Right. And you can actually get it even in liquid, so... All little kind of strips you can put under your tongue, all kinds of things. So Well, and the sad thing is, is one bottle of liquid, so one bottle of, you know, NyQuil Robitussin can get you high. And over a million youth in the U.S. and young adults misuse these every year. And the, the other scary thing, and we'll get to this in a second, is what it's combined with. It can be combined with antihistamines, acetaminophen, pseudoephedrine, all these other things. Yeah. So as of right now, there's about 140 different over-the-counter things that have DXM in them. So I think, you know, it's everywhere. Now, what is the mechanism of action of this particular drug? Well, it's interesting, I think, that it's actually a de-isomer of levomethorphan, which is actually an opioid. Yep, but somehow this de-isomer, you know, derivative itself, DXM, is not an opioid. It's different mechanism of action, does not bind to the mu or delta opioid receptors, which, of course, is what we always think about when you're thinking of, like, oxyheroin, morphine, and all the typicals. But it does act at the sigma opioid receptor, and this is the, you know, believed antitussive. So the whole, this is why they say it's a cough medicine. If you believe that anything stops a cough. So at high doses, of course, it can be metabolized into dextro. Dextrorphan. That's what I was going to say, mm-hmm. dextrorphan. And, uh, and then when it does that, that's actually the active metabolite, and that antagonizes the MDA receptors. So it's No, no, the NMDA. Did I say it? You oh, said yeah. MD. NMDA. NMDA. <laughs> and then in fact, it can act a lot like PCP and ketamine or ketamine, whichever you like best. But it's interesting that way, sometimes it will make the positive you know, urine test for PCP. So that's right. something to always think about. It is. And we had a discussion about this yesterday. And so basically, if you ever get a PCP on a urine drug screen, I mean, different things can make it positive effects are, but 
really make sure you ask about this medication because you don't ask, you know, these are the -the over-the-counter meds you don't always ask about, but it can also be certainergic. So combine the serotonin receptors, which is super important because if they're taking other, you know, serotonin medications, SSRIs, so your Prozac, your Zoloft, all those things, um, Tramadol, they might present with more of the serotonin syndrome. Um, it can cause, you know, hypertension, tachycardia, sweating, dilated pupils, which can be a lot of the present presenting symptoms when they do show up in an ER. And uh, yeah, how it's, you know, what were you saying? Yeah. Um, um, but and the other thing is, is how it's metabolized. You know, Kurt mentioned it gets broken down into this active metabolite. Interestingly, is that... It, you know, a lot of the U.S. population, for whatever reason, don't know what that actually means genetically, but a lot of the U.S. population, for whatever reason, tends to metabolize this medication super fast. So it gets to that active metabolite, that dextrorphin, quickly, which is what makes people more susceptible to abuse. And remember, this just doesn't show up on a UDAS, so that makes it uh, very easy for people to use and hide. So important. Yes. So let's talk about the pharmacokinetics, and I, I think really importantly, that that half-life of this medication is relatively, you know, quick, you know, for people who are fast metabolizers, a few hours. And occasionally when you see those uh, slower metabolizers, up to 30 hours. So it can hang around in most, in some people, but most it's gone quickly. You know, we're not really going to kind of get into the, the, the weeds here with meds that can inhibit that cytochrome P2D6, um, but there are medications that can slow that down. And unfortunately, I haven't seen a lot of journal articles out there if we could use these medications as treatments, but maybe that's going to be coming. Uh, importantly, this medication, even though it's metabolized in the liver, does get excreted almost exclusively through the kidneys. So these are areas that can definitely be impacted when people have super high doses on board and are toxic. So definitely things to look at. Now, some of the side effects of this can be interesting. And of course, therapeutic doses you know, they're generally not that great, maybe a little nausea or constipation or drowsiness, but it's really at those super therapeutic doses where you're going to get tachycardia and hypertension, even ataxia and psychosis. And I think one of the worst ones, the hyperthermia. So, mm-hmm. um, and of course death, which is a bad side effect. A bad side effect. You know, and we talked about this also yesterday is that a lot of the therapeutic doses tend to be similar to the opioids and Ironically, they actually do respond a little bit to Narcan, so it must just be that sigma receptor. And I guess Narcan's always the answer if you don't know why a person's acting weird and kind of out of it. But, you know, the maximum daily dose that anybody should take if they're taking these medications appropriately is 120 milligrams, which the bottle says, so just read that. But the really neat thing is is how this medication can totally impact a person, and it's very dose-dependent. Now, you can build tolerance, and so some people who've used this a longer time might need to jump a plateau before they have these effects, but these effects can actually, even though the half-life is shorter, can last for six hours, Um, and people, why they abuse it is this low dose, this 100 to 200 milligram doses, they can get this kind of stimulated thing, this MDMA ecstasy-like effect. The feeling of closeness. Um, and of course, as they go up is where we have troubles. That second plateau, right from 200 to 400 milligrams, they might get more of the hallucinations, visual, and, and that euphoria. And some would equate that to maybe alcohol and marijuana-like. And then you jump to the third plateau when you're at higher doses, 300 to 600 milligrams. And again, there's this range because of tolerance. But this is when you're starting to get a little bit more scary. The hallucinations worsen, euphoria, perceptual distortions. So you see objects in your visual field. 
a lot of motor impairment functioning and coordination, which, you know, makes this uh, not a good medication if you're out roaming the streets or driving. No, not a good <laughs> thing. Um, and so really, as you go up, it gets, it gets worse. And I think the, the extreme doses are really the important thing where you get that really severe sedation, respiratory depression, and potential death. Well, and this the paranoia, which which can be a big thing. And um, the paranoia can it can kind of make people more impulsive, have worse judgment, can create more impulsive, violent acts. There's a lot of assaults, suicides, homicides with these on board. And so definitely something to, to be aware of. Excuse me. Um, and something uh, to, to keep in mind of is that 14% of all people who come into an ER, I'm jumping ahead a little bit. Yes, um, you are. Just because it fits with the violent acts. 14% of people who come into ERs with dextromethorphan toxicity, it was actually part of a suicide attempt. So you're really going to want to, you know, ferret that out a little bit. Yeah. Uh, and again, some of the ill effects, remember, the serotonergic uh, issues with this particular medication, is especially mixed with some of the things like fluoxetine and other serotonergic agents. So uh, again, those high doses can be ch- changed. You just did something funny there. Um, oh, but th- things can be changed by <laughs> congestion, uh, whether it's alcohol, other drugs, and you know, habitual use, etc. So I'm going to say it again. When someone comes into the ER and you get a urine drug screen, because you do if they're acting like this, everybody gets a urine drug screen, you might see these other substances, marijuana, opioids, benzos, like you just mentioned on the drug screen. You won't going to see the dextromethorphan at super high levels. You might see that PCP, but I think a lot of people disregard that. So again, remembering that this could be something to ask about. Kind of interesting is the, I am going to talk about this because it's super cool, is a lot of pharmacists, people who misuse all sorts of substances are way smarter in the pharmacy department than I am. But there is this extraction that they do. It's called Agent Lemon. And so they take lemon juice, ammonia, lighter fluid, which lemon juice sounds really scary, and they somehow mix it with these products, the dextromethorphan products, that is to reduce the amount of the other ingredients, the acetaminophen, the pseudoephedrine. So they try to get rid of that, which then concentrates the dextromethorphan. Um, where they actually call it then crystal dex. Yeah, and I, I think it's important to remember that some of the drugs that we see overused, such as, for instance, a an oxycodone with Tylenol, you often forget about the Tylenol if they're using a lot of pills. And in this case, the Tylenol, if they're using excessive amounts, can also cause a big problem. So, so let's always just keep that continue in mind. That, mind, that, that mind thought. We'll just jump ahead a few slides. So the Tylenol ends up, like Kurt just mentioned, being a thing, but... The thing also, the, the issue is that the toxicity of the DXM is going to be at that six-hour mark. The acetaminophen toxicity isn't coming in until about 10 hours. So you might not know it. And ironically, a lot of the p- people, patients who use these products don't even realize they are taking acetaminophen. And so that can create longer-term liver issues. And these are young people, um, you know, that 12 to 25 age group. So don't forget the acetaminophen there and hold them longer and get levels um, sometimes they need N-acetylcysteine, the NAC, to, to treat that acetaminophen overdose injection, ingestion, excuse me, I diverse, digressed. I thought you said indigestion. No. I might have. <laughs> so really the availability of this is really, you know, it's everywhere. And there interestingly are a number of states, including California, North Dakota, Texas, New York, that actually have already restricted this uh, as far as sales to minors. And I think that that's something that everybody should be looking at after looking at all of this. But it's really in everything. It's kind of overtaken even the use of codeine. I mean, I think codeine 
was frequently, I've seen a lot of patients that were getting a bottle or two of this a month uh, from uh, providers and who coughs that much? Well, and we'll get to that. Like, is it even effective? Is it even effective? You know, but this, you know, it's it's considered a, people look at it as a low risk medication drug because it's over the counter and online access tells you to use it. And then there is this question of it being a gateway drug. A lot of youth that misuse DXM also are misusing other substances, marijuana inhalants and hallucinogens like LSD, ecstasy, um, to name a couple. Um, so what do you, what is it called? Like what, what are you going to hear about patients, um, using DXM? You know, sometimes you'll hear going farming, dexing, robodosing, robotripping, um, purple slurp, purple slurp, all um, kinds of things, triple C, lots of different names, poor man, PCP. I'm just going through the common ones. Skittles. That was an interesting one. Yeah. Um, velvet and vitamin D that was, that was interesting. Yeah. And one of the things, I mean, when we look at this now, how can you tell that this is becoming a big issue? Well, there's a lot of data showing that uh, the trends really of DXM abuse and how often these patients are calling in or going to the ED. And if you really look from 2004 to 2011, basically the number has almost doubled of almost patients doubled. that have come in with DXM troubles up to almost 5,000 cases. Interestingly, a little bit more with girls up to age 17. And then the boys take over. Don't, you know, yeah. mature, I guess. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> prior to 17, more often young ladies and afterwards more often young men. Yes. You know, I guess one positive is that the peak, if you're looking at the National Poison Data System, so the Poison Control Center, um, was about 2006. But the highest use of this, of DXM, appears to be in that 14 to 17-year-old age group. And so this is these are young kids. And um, luckily, with all these states kind of getting on board a little bit and just more awareness, there has been decreases over the last few years, but it's definitely still an issue, especially because these are over-the-counter. And the primary one abuse is this coracetin cough and cold, the triple C. The triple C. So, so I don't know if we need to talk about a lot more of the data. There have been some different studies, and California has looked at this quite a bit. And uh, they really felt from 1999 to 2004, when they looked at this, there was a literally a massive increase in the number of cases of this tenfold increased use of DXM. So, again, it has tapered off since then, but uh, really a, something that was used a lot. You know, and then even the National Institute on Drug Abuse comments on this yet it's still over-the-counter. You know, they do recognize this. It can cause increased acids throughout the body. We'll, ca- we'll explain some of these long-term things. We talked about the liver damage, if acetaminophen is there, but there can actually be this chronic decreased respiratory rate. So people who are really heavy users long time, they might have like this decreased respiratory rate that persists. And then, of course, the fear of does this transition to other substances of abuse. Yeah, so. does it? And again, we'd already talked about the acetaminophen, so I don't know that we need to go back to that. But uh, again, with any medication that is being overused, you always have to remember what else is in it. What and, are the other ingredients? Yeah, acetaminophen is that tricky one that every young person thinks is safe, mm-hmm. but at certain levels, obviously not. Okay, so my uh, this is like a totally new thing that none of us had ever really known about, this thing called bromism. So this is a toxidrome for DXM. So this is a... It's different than bromance is what you're saying. It, it is different than bromance, Bromism. which, you know, we have established you have a bromance with Charlie Reznikoff and I just have like an infatuation. So we're a good trifecta. But anyway, so bromism, this might be something you can identify even without having noticed that they had DXM if you forget to ask. But 
you know, DXM is a hydrobromide. So if you, that's the whole thing, but people, the fatigue, the ataxia, headache, memory loss. So this is persisting beyond that toxic, hallucinatory, paranoid state. They have this. Now, what you'll notice is on like a basic panel, the serum chloride is significantly elevated. We usually ignore that. We do usually ignore that. And then the anion gap actually flips to negative. And so this is it. I mean, if you see that high chloride, low low to negative anion gap, think bromine, hydrobromide, bromism, think dextromethorphan. So definitely something to ask about. But really the treatment, if it's identified early on, is a lot of hydration with diuretics. Um, these mental status changes, though, can persist, and you know there are cases of really long-term chronic findings. You know they they do get this tolerance for whatever reason. There isn't a dependence, which is good, but this toxic psychosis and cognitive deterioration can persist long-term. Yeah, and, and actually, the discussion we had yesterday with the toxicologist Beth Bilden, the Beth Bilden, yeah, uh, it's really like. Well, is this the bromism that's causing this? I have a hard time saying bromism. It's mm-hmm. like bromance. Uh, it's weird. Is it the bromism that causes some of these long-term effects, or is it the dextromethorphan? And uh, great question. Do we know? No. no. So, <laughs> so what is a patient going to present? What like you know they're going to have altered mental status. You might not get that history right away. So it's important to have asked other people what was around them. They had a bottle of Robitussin next to them. That might be a clue. Yeah, that's a clue. A huge clue. <laughs> um, even if they had a cough, and that would I mean parents might say that it, it's still a clue. Um, but they're going to be hyperthermic, diaphoretic things we talked about: inappropriate laughing, dilated pupils, elevated blood pressure, elevated heart rate. Um, I find it interesting that they get that dilated pupils, right? which would be the opposite of withdrawal of an opioid. Exactly. But it's that peripheral adrenergic effect, which we kind of skipped out a little bit. But then, you know, the zombie like ataxia, seizures, coma, all of that. Yeah. And so when you see these patients too, you know, some of these patients are going to be really unable to protect themselves. And so one of the things that's really important is making sure that there has not been a trauma or a rape or, you know, again, a se- some type of sexual assault when these patients are really vulnerable. Or a suicide attempt. I mean, yeah. all of this has to plan. You got to sort through that. As far as labs, you're going to kind of do a ton. You're going to do all the basics, the CBC comp panel. You're going to get a CK because rhabdo, which is one of the most typical findings of rhabdomyolysis, hyperthermia, metabolic acidosis. These are all the scary things that you need to treat. So you really want to get that CK level. And then, of course, don't forget to order the co-ingestants, the Tylenol, the salicylates, or the aspirin, ethanol. Um, get the urine drug screen. Get pregnancy tests. You might need to get that EKG, especially if they're super tachycardic, because super, super high doses can cause myocardial infarction. Now, apparently people withdraw from this. A little and bit. So when you get withdrawal, uh, really that first week it might be relatively mild. Looks a little like COVID. I was just going to say that. Uh, severe, like some vomiting, some myalgias, some diarrhea. In, in the COVID time, I, I think we're going to try and assume most often it's going to be COVID right now. But uh, after a few weeks, it can last a while and you can get night sweats and insomnia, uh, you know, kind of that anxiety. But it's really the long-term things, I think, that kind of hang on and maybe even look like other anxiety or, you know, issues with panic attacks and some memory issues, kind of its cravings and flashbacks. So uh, really kind of an odd, odd drug. So what do you do about it? <laughs> Supportive uh, I care. I mean, you might need a medical toxicologist like Dr. Beth Bilden or Joanne Lace or whoever you are in the state, but 
you know, you might need to consult with them, although really you're going to want to keep them in a calm, quiet room. Think about it. They're very agitated, paranoid. You might need to sedate them. You might need restraints. Benzos, short-acting benzos you might need. Low-dose antipsychotics, they tend to go more towards the olanzapine, the Haldols. Again, that Narcan if their breathing rate's low. Now, if you catch them within the first hour of the ingestion, you do give activated charcoal um, to try to help soak some of that up. Beyond the first hour, it's not worth it. And then, of course, you're going to treat that rhabdo if they have it. Treat the serotonin syndrome if it's recognized and they have it. But beyond that, there is no magic antidote. And long-term treatment? Well, Go obviously, there are no, yeah, there's no DXM, you know, specific treatment centers. But really looking at inpatient or outpatient, uh, much like you would for any substance, and even a 12-step for people who are using this. And, in fact, we had a, the case that was presented yesterday on the on the echo was actually a woman who had had issues with alcohol and then kind of transitioned to DXM, which was obviously easier to get because, a hold of. Yeah, easier because you can't, it's easier to get hold of. Obviously, no smell with that and not on screens. And people, you know, family didn't notice it and it's easier to kind of hide. Yeah. So, what do people say about this, Dr. Bell, this using this particular substance? So, you know, the, the, a lot of the things, people love it from the first try, which sounds a lot like, you know, methamphetamines, feel like they brought them closer to God. But then the same person who made a comment in this article um, said, I dreamt my mother ripped my face off with her fingernails, cut some of my fingers and toes off and ripped my arm off. So, I mean, you have this kind of euphoric... Um, Bad dream. But then you have this, yeah, that paranoia and that anxiety and awful... Um, one thing you might hear is that people say they got a dirty high and that's when they mix the alcohol with the DXM, which is super common. Yeah. And just to be clear, uh, we did have a case, uh, that we actually went through on the echo, but we're not really going to do that. But I think it's important to understand that there have been reported cases of really long term, mm -hmm. um, long term effects of this. And, uh, really as a part of a case report from literally 20 years ago, uh, deterioration, cognitive, uh, state and, um, even during periods of abstinence, people can have trouble. Uh, again, generally, it's a very short-term cognitive change, but there are reported cases of this going the wrong direction over mm -hmm. time, so uh, it can be prolonged. Yeah, I'm not going to get into the neurodevelopment thing, but there are areas of the brain, especially if people start really early, that can be permanently impacted, and that's kind of that impulsive control area of the brain, so it's definitely something to think about. So we've kind of mentioned that these aren't the most fabulous um, cough medications because they haven't really been proven and they clearly have a lot of side effects. So what do you do about a cough, Dr. Devine? Uh, you know, I just do nothing. But uh, you, well, know, you listen to great grandma and you give them some honey, money. You know, the interesting thing, and really over the last 20 years of my career, I, I can tell you I've read a number of different articles over time that really showed that cough syrups in general are not that effective. And so, you know, when you look at them and you compare them, I know you found some papers, uh, there's really not much benefit to medications as opposed to honey. Right. And this Goldman article that came from the Canadian Family Physician Journal in 2014, um, basically saying that the, most of the prescribed the over-the-counter preparations for cough, especially in children, definitely obviously carry the risk of adverse effects. Um, and then I like this other one, that Shadcom, um, which I'll try to tell you where that came from. Came from the Journal of Alternative Complementive Medication, Medicine, 2010. Sure, it's not contemplative? No. Okay. It sounded like I was contemplating, but no. 
So he basically, they studied and they studied different dosing of honey. They studied uh, several of these other medications that are over the counter, like the DXM, the diphenhydramine, and basically said that receiving just 2.5 mils dose of honey before sleep has more alleviating effects on even URI-induced cough compared with these other URI cough and cold medicines. So, yeah, but what about codeine? Everybody wants codeine cough syrup. Uh, yeah, well, that's a prescription, but codeine also... A lot of ill effects, especially when they're giving them to kids. I mean, that used to be the thing is codeine cough syrup for kids. or You know, use codeine after a tonsillectomy, but the codeine has a lot of negative effects. Yeah. Obviously, overdose and buildup of metabolites and yeah, well, doesn't remem- actually work. Remembering that there are those people who metabolize codeine very quickly to morphine, and those people can actually overdose with mm-hmm. relatively mellow doses. So And a totally digression along those lines is, you know, nursing moms should not get codeine after delivery because it does pass through the breast milk and to, there's been reports of infants, newborns dying because of that exact yeah. thing. I can tell you 25 years ago, uh, codeine cough syrup was, and all cough syrups, uh, even prescription ones, that there was quite a few of them back then that were used in kids. Uh, and a lot of that data... Uh, now showing that it's worse for them than actually honey. having a cough. But don't don't give the honey to less than one year olds. That's I won't, the caveat. I, I would never do that. So anyway, I, I think that's <laughs> I think that's wrapping it up for DXM. I think so too, and I just thank you all for listening. This was a super fun, informative talk, but definitely something that's super common, especially in the younger populations, and something to be aware of and to ask about. Yeah, especially if on those drug screens with any patient we see PCP, uh, it's not always a med they're taking. It but, could be an over-the-counter problem. Correct. And DXM doesn't always make the PCP. So don't just say, well, they don't have an, any DXM on board. Their PCP is negative. So it's it's definitely a hard one. And there is a urine drug screen that you can order for DXM, but really nobody uses that unless it's forensically. And, of course, it takes 400 years to come back. So That's a long time. Yes, it's not going to help you in the acute time. All right. But anyway, well, well the battle takes take over, and thank you, everybody. We'll chat with you next week. Mm-hmm.